0: we ask da's to do a lot more than anybody else no they are they're unique amongst lawyers their actual oath is not to sort of zealously defend their client is to do justice
1: hi i'm matthew watkins and you're listening to the new thinking podcast from the center for court innovation How much responsibility do prosecutors bear for over-incarceration? That's the question explored by my guest today, John Pfaff. John is a professor of law at Fordham University and the author in 2017 of Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration and How to Achieve Real Reform. First among those true causes is the power of prosecutors, a power Pfaff contends is very nearly unchecked. Thanks in part to Pfaff's work, the debate over prosecutors is now very much front and center, but what would real reform look like? How much can we realistically expect from reformist DAs? Today's discussion is the first in a planned series on the power of prosecutors, and it's hard to think of anyone better to start us off than John Pfaff. John, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. So I wanted to start with the title of your book. Um, For me, I I think Locked In has two meanings one is that the us is locked into this mass incarceration model but also your view that well meaning criminal justice reformers are also locked into a mistaken series of assumptions about what's driving that model so to start us off could you talk a little bit about what you call the standard story
0: so the standard story is is a term i use refer to views on what causes prison growth that aren't wrong they're they're all legitimate concerns but we emphasize them at the expense of things that matter more. Uh, So, you know, one thing we talk all the time about, you know, are long sentences, people sort of spending, riding away in prison for decades and decades. And people spend far more time in prison here per admission than most other, Western countries. But, you know, the median time in prison for a a nonviolent crime is about one year, and for violent crime is about four years. And, you know, murder, people convicted of murder, they are spending 10, 20, 15 years. But those long sentences, those really long ones, are almost all entirely murder. What's really driven this is a rise in admissions, more and more people being sent to prison in the first place. And that's controlled almost entirely by the prosecutor. The data in my book I look at is from sort of the 1990s and the 2000s, which is this period when, when crime is falling, but prison keeps going up. And so we see is that there are actually fewer and fewer arrests being made over this time, especially arrests if you exclude marijuana cases, which never go to prison. The number of arrests is dropping. And the number of people being admitted to prison is going up. So you have fewer and fewer people entering the system and more people going to prison. And the only thing that really seems to change to explain that is the chance that an arrest turns into a felony case. What's the chance that the prosecutor decides, you know what, I've got this guy. He's been arrested. I'm going to file felony charges against him. And a felony charge is the kind of charge that carries a prison sentence. Um, and so the, the chance of going to prison doesn't change. The amount of time spent in prison doesn't change. But the fact you get charged in the first place, that's the big shift. And that's entirely within almost a completely unreviewable discretion of prosecutors. They can charge, not charge. You can't appeal their decision not to charge. It's entirely their responsibility. And yet we kind of ignored them in the, the reform debate. Right? We talk all about long sentences. We try to change what the statutes say. Um, but no one looks at prosecutors. You know, the other standard, another standard story part, we talk a lot about the war on drugs, people mm-hmm. going to prison for drugs. Um, in fact, most Americans think about half of all people in prison are there for drugs. It's 15% and falling. Over half of all people in prison are there for violence. Uh, and so if we really want to cut our prison populations, yes, we can let people off for drugs. It's about 250,000 people. That's not nothing, right? And, and many of them should not be there. But we're not going to get far unless we really pay attention to violence. And you know, most Americans remain, even self-identified liberals, remain very strongly committed against changing how we punish people for violence. And the third part I look at is we talk all the time about private prisons. They hold about 8% of the people. Most states don't have any private prisons. There's no evidence that those private prisons matter. What really matters are the public sector unions, the guard unions that can fight really hard for their jobs. You know, private prisons make about $400 million a year in profit. Wages and benefits to public sector prison guards comes to about $25 billion a year, $30 billion. Uh, They have a lot more to fight for.
1: If we just pick up the war on drugs thread for a second before we turn more directly to the prosecutor power and admissions question, Uh, a lot of what you wrote, and I don't think it's why you set out to write the book, but ended up countering um, a lot of Michelle Alexander's argument in in her well-known book, The New Jim Crow. Now, that's a book that's been very influential, a lot of reformers even. I think some district attorneys will credit it with a kind of seeing the light sort of moment on the racism and inhumanity of the justice system, which is a view, I think, that you share... But at the same time, was it difficult for you to end up sort of publicly identified with this position as the person questioning Michelle Alexander in a
0: sense? I mean, I didn't find it difficult. I think sometimes we get painted a little too diametrically opposite. I think you're right that I disagree with the emphasis she places on the war on drugs, but I think her overall view about the way race operates matters. I I also disagree a little bit about how sort of centralized she views it. She sort of views it as this top-down – effort to control populations and that, and our willingness to control Black populations certainly plays a huge role in this. Um, but to me, I'm much more interested in trying to explore... The way we sort of our system is sort of cobbled together, and, and it's, we call this we call it a criminal justice system, but it's not. Yeah, right? it's, it's very not hard to
1: find a noun to describe this system. of yeah, three thousand. I, I think my,
0: right three thousand, but even worse than that, right? Because it's it's seventeen thousand city police departments. It's 2,500 county DA offices. It's fifty state legislators. It's fifty governors. It's pro boards. It's, it's state, local, county, and they're all assembled in this chaotic, incoherent kind of way. And many of these imperfections worked to allow incredibly race to play an incredibly powerful role in sort of a, a bottom-up kind of way, rather than sort of top-down. So I think oftentimes we're sort of examining the same issue from sort of more complementary directions. And I, and I will say, in, in defense of the new Jim Crow, that prison reform had to start with the drug offense. Sometimes of people say, you no, know, the the U.S. prison population exploded to these heights, but it didn't explode— it grew steadily in this small amount every single year, but it grew relentlessly for nearly four decades. Right, starts growing in 1972, and it doesn't turn down until 2010. And you're not going to stop that like just slow, steady, relentless momentum on a dime. And you're not going to start it with the you know, John Faff let murders out of prison early bill. Right, you've got to start somewhere, and somewhere to start was was drugs. They are the, they are the most appealing case. It allows you to say, look. This doesn't make sense. And look at look at how race is operating in a way that I think will bring liberals and conservatives together to address it, right? Because they're all willing to consider maybe this is being done incorrectly. So, well, perhaps she should have started off by saying drugs is the biggest driver because numerically it's just not. You know, to say let's look at sort of the role drugs have played and what to do, I think is where it had to start there. My concern is that we're now a good decade into reform, and we're still just debating the low-level nonviolent drug offender, and we're stuck in this rut, and we're only slowly beginning to address issues of, of punishing those who can acts of violence differently. And the fact is, from a public safety point of view, prison is not the way to stop violence, right? There are other things. It's not like I'm saying, hey, let's just have more violence and fewer prisoners. I'm saying we could have both fewer people in prison for violence and less violence, in part by using the money we're not spending on prisons to fund things that work.
1: So to turn directly then to, to prosecutors in these sort of 3,000 or so offices uh, across the country, could, could you explain a little bit the nature of the discretion that they have and the oversight over them, or, or lack of oversight as the case may be, right. and, and really how that differs from other actors in the criminal justice
0: system? Right. So to start, the United States is literally the lone country in the world that elects its prosecutors. No other country does this. Like, there's no one above the prosecutor except for the county electorate. right? So, you know, take like Brooklyn, right? Eric Gonzalez is a DA in Brooklyn. de Blasio, the mayor, can't tell him what to do. You know, Eric Schneiderman, the AG, he can't tell him what to do. He literally can only be told what to do by the voters of Kings County. And so that's a tremendous amount of power and, and sort of, you know, frees accountability from sort of any other sort of hierarchical structure. DAs are county officials. They're elected by the county. But prisons in one of these situations that makes no sense when you think about it, are paid for by the state. So if you're a DA and you charge them with a felony and you send in to prison, you don't have to pay for that. It doesn't matter of your budget. It has no fiscal impact on you at all. And so of course you're going to overuse prison because you ignore the cost. And and, and in fact, to make it worse, probation in jail, well, sort of the lesser alternatives for, for punishment in prison, what we would charge with a misdemeanor for, those are paid for by the county. So it's actually cheaper to be tougher on crime because the state, you know, you get to send them to the state prison, but the state has no ability to tell you, the DA, to stop using their resources. There's just no oversight. In fact, one of the challenges I face is that I have no, I, I can't actually see what DA offices are doing. People who, who, empirical people in criminal justice often fight with each other over who has the worst data. Um, but I, I can usually win most of those debates by saying, but I have no data at all. Just have none. Um, There's no centralized data of any meaningful sort on prosecutors. And in fact, my data on prosecutors that I was able to use to show how tough they become over the 90s and 2000s actually came from the courts. The DAs don't gather data, but court systems do. So as soon as that case hits the felony court docket, then the court system's reporting apparatus kicks in, and so I can start track what DAs are doing based on what happens when they hit hit the court system.
1: How do we account for this lack of data? Is it by uh, design if we want to attribute nefarious motives to it?
0: I'm not sure it's entirely by design. I think part of it is that DAs kind of fall in this strange gray area, right? You, know, you got the police who are out there with the guns and the badges and the front line on crime. And we've gathered data on them since like the early 1930s is when the uniform crime reports really started kicking the gear, right? Because they were, you know, crime is sort of central in our mind of a big social problem. You know, the police are kind of the people who are out there gathering. It, so we've always sort of wanted to have that crime and arrest data, and court systems are often these big state-level bureaucracies, and they are sort of the, you know, the intermediary between p- crime and the prisons and that. And we've always sort of had a lot of data gathering there. Prosecutors are these sort of these county officials. And I think because they're so, at the, on the one hand, local, independent. On the other hand, unlike the police, they're not sort of this front line on crime. Right? They're, they're, they play a huge role, but they're kind of like the second line. And I think they've kind of fallen through the cracks that way. I think also, you know, I say we need more data on what prosecutors do. And then the obvious follow-up question is, okay, what data should we gather? <laughs> and that's actually really hard. And um, it really
1: matters, right? It, it, I mean, what we count and how we count it?
0: Yeah, because people will conform their behavior to the numbers that we gather, right? They, they will play to the statistics. And, I mean, one of the challenges we face, and, and people are increasingly, I think, starting to think about what this means, is we ask DAs to do a lot more than anybody else, right? Police have one job. Prevent the crime, and two jobs, and arrest a guy who actually does the crime, right? So it's very easy to measure, like how many crimes happen, how many arrests do you make? We're basically done prosecutors have to decide, you no, know, they're they are unique amongst lawyers in that their job is, their actual oath is not to sort of zealously defend their client, is to do justice. And they, I mean, they have to do a lot. Do you charge this person? Maybe even if he's completely clearly guilty, you don't. They're making all these decisions based on a whole host of factors. And what we actually need to track, it's, it's not easy. And a lot of these offices are small and poor and better funded than the public defenders, but they're still poor and their systems are antiquated and they're running on paper. And, you know, it's not going to be easy to to get things up to where we need them to be to really have good data.
1: And then speaking of a, another black box, how much do we know about what's going on in the plea bargaining process, which is really how the criminal justice system
0: functions now? About 95% of all guilty verdicts come from a plea bargain. Right? So you often hear it state as 95% of all cases result in a plea. That's actually not true right if there's a guilty verdict 95 percent of those cases were by plea and yeah that surely plays a big role because it allows D offices to manage their their caseloads better I'm not sure it explains what happened in the 90s and 2000s because I'm not sure the rate of plea bargaining changed all that much um, but it certainly gives them tremendous leverage and, and sort of remo- again I think removes the whole thing from public view right? I mean if you watch law and order my guess is any season of law and order, was responsible for about 80% of all trials in New York State, right? Like you know, none of these cases end in these big dramatic trials in some beautiful courtroom, right? It's all someone signing a piece of paper in some, you know, jail cell or some dingy DA's office.
1: Right, and often with the threat of a much longer sentence if they turn down the deal hanging over their head. Right, right?
0: and we have no idea what those threats look like. You know, there's an example, a really great example of how hidden these numbers are. Uh, when the federal, when one, when one of the lobbying groups for the federal trial attorneys was protesting against congressional reform efforts. Uh, They argued, look, no one ever gets these really brutal mandatory minimums, right? Only like, you know, 5% or or something of these drug cases get these mandatories. We save these for the worst of the worst. And the data shows. They know this mandatory minimum is imposed in about, like, no, make up a number, like 5% of all drug cases. But then, you know, a couple academics sort of interviewed people and done more ethnographic studies, what they find, not surprisingly, is that almost no one ever gets these mandatory minimums because they all plead to avoid them, right? And so the ADA, the assistant U.S. attorney say, look, if you don't take this 10-year deal, we're going to nail you this 50-year mandatory. I'll take 10, right? You take 10 right away. And then the stats show, look, he didn't take that mandatory. Um, Now, to be fair, only the feds had these generally insane mandatories for relatively lowish level offenses, right? The states have much more – for all the, the problems states have, they're, they're more rational than, than the feds are. Um, but yeah, I think you no, know, we have no idea how these longer sentences matter because we can't see how they're being used as, as coercive threats during plea bargaining.
1: So, uh, how do we then change the the incentives for prosecutors? I mean, it strikes me that prosecutors, i mean, in some ways, their role is to be the fox guarding the henhouse. So, how do we get them to conceive of their job in this more reform friendly way that you're talking about?
0: Right. So, I mean, obviously, the easiest thing, I suppose, to do in the short run um is just to elect more reform minded prosecutors, right. And we've seen that even, even in 2016, even in states that voted for Trump, you saw reform-minded DAs win 16 or 17 elections. Right? It wasn't no 2,200 offices, but it was a lot. And they were in the cities, and the cities handle a lot of the cases. That's a promising start. At the same time, I think it highlights a growing divide in criminal justice that's not getting enough attention these days, which is a growing urban, non-urban split. We talk about now how, how the U.S. incarceration has declined, and that's not really true. I mean, To start off, about 60% of the drop is just California. Alone, And there's lessons for prosecutors there too. Um, but once you move beyond California, almost all the drop is in urban counties. Urban counties are sending fewer and fewer people to prison. Rural counties are actually sending more and more people to prison. The, small, the smallest counties are, saying, are still becoming increasingly aggressive. And I think that's because they're, they are electing DAs who are aggressive, and they're electing DAs who are aggressive because the voters are aggressive. Right? And so this idea of, hey, let's, uh, let's, let's vote in reform-minded DAs, that works in increasingly blue, increasingly progressive cities, right? So reform-minded DAs is the way to start, but it's not a panacea, especially once you move outside of cities. And I think the other thing we should think about doing also, the final big idea I've become a big fan of, are guidelines for prosecutors. So in New Jersey, and New Jersey alone amongst us, and again, once again, another product of a long-running 20-year bitter battle in, in the court system, New Jersey prosecutors actually have guidelines for plea bargaining drug cases right? And they look just like sort of the sentencing guidelines that judges all across the country use, right? So here's the, you know, it's got one axis has like the the severity of the offense, the other axis has like the prior criminal history, and that gives like a range of sentences that the DA is then allowed to offer at plea bargaining, right? In an effort to sort of constrain the discretion that they used to have before, they can sort of offer any plea high, high and low. And again, when it comes to implementation, there's, I mean, you spend hours talking about sort of how it doesn't doesn't work in New Jersey, but it shows that you can do this. And I think we need to do it not just for plea bargaining but for sort of every step of the process. Adam Foss, who's a former prosecutor from Boston, has this TED Talk about sort of one of his early experiences. He tells a story when he's like a second-year prosecutor. This kid comes in who stole a bunch of computers from some nearby, you know, Best Buy or something. And here he is, this two years out of law school, almost no oversight, and he can kind of do anything he wants with this kid. And he, what he decides to do is to basically not charge him. But to walk him back to the Best Buy, sit down with the manager, and work out some sort of plan, like you'll give these computers back, you'll do this for him, and in exchange for this, if you, don't, if you do all these things, I won't charge you. On the fly, second year out of law school, just comes up with this. And then several years later, he's at a party, and some kid comes up to him and says, you might not remember me, but like I'm that kid, and I have a management position at a bank, and if I had a criminal record, I never could have gotten this. Right? You basically saved my future by choosing to do this. And on the one hand, it's a very heartwarming story, right? DA using his discretion to like basically save someone's career. It's fantastic. But it's also terrifying, right? DAs aren't trained to make the kinds of policy decisions we're asking them to make. Right? We're saying, decide with this kid quickly what's the right thing to do from a public safety perspective. And that's a really hard that's a really hard thing for someone with time and training to do, much less someone without the training under intense time pressure. And so I think we need to start developing much more rigorous or guidelines for every step. Do you charge? Do you dismiss? Do you divert? This is a felony? This is a misdemeanor? These are all decisions that have huge import. And, you know, basically we just sort of tell DAs, trust your intuition and these cases you read in law school. And that's just not the right way to run something that's so impactful. Yeah, I mean it seems to me
1: that Foss is arguing for a much uh, more holistic approach in a sense from a prosecutor or it's certainly a greatly expanded role. I mean I recently read a paper advocating that prosecutors get much more involved in the reentry process and in preventing recidivism. But I mean what do we say to people who will counter that's just just not the proper job. That's not the lane of a prosecutor.
0: I mean I guess my response would be – to just disagree with their initial proposition, right? Why is this not the lane of the prosecutor? The prosecutor's job is to do justice and to advance public safety. Almost everyone's coming out of prison. So if you don't think about that when you send them to prison, you're not actually making things better, right? And there's plenty of evidence coming out. Uh, There's a great paper written about two years ago by an economist that shows that every extra month spent in prison increases the risk of recidivism. And he finds that the risk of reoffending basically wipes out all the gains you get from incapacitating them while they're in prison. So there's no you know, so, so you lock people up and they come out, you've actually made it so they behave their you know their their ability to, to sort of conform is even weaker, and then you, all the gains you get from locking them up are wiped out by the, the, the subsequent greater rates of reoffending. Right? How is it not the prosecutor's responsibility to, to think about that? Right? No, like this is what the job is. It's about managing public safety in an incredibly powerful kind of way. And if you don't have the skills and the training or the tools to do that job, then then the problem isn't with job description. The problem is with sort of how we're setting them up and who we're bringing in to do to do the job.
1: Are, are you concerned talking about this new breed of uh, reform-minded DAs that, that maybe some people are placing outsized hopes in, in what they're going to be able to accomplish?
0: Yeah, we realize that DAs are only one part of a very complex system, and they have a lot of discretion. But other people do to resist them, right? So, so I know in Chicago, I don't, I I can't remember all the exact details, but I know that in Chicago, for example, Kim Fox has been pushing real the new the new reform DA, like in Chicago, Kim Fox has been pushing hard for bail reform and and to use bail less. Um, but the judges are resisting that. Right? So her, her ADAs are going in and saying, like, less bail, no bail, but kind of the judges are saying, no, I still want to give bail, right? Because they have their own elective incentives that they're concerned about at the same time. And so I think we are ignoring the amount of sort of political pressure they're going to face, the amount of legislative and judicial pressure they're going to face. And I think they can do a tremendous amount, and I'm very excited about the, about the opportunities they, they bring, but I think we need to be careful not to put too much burden on them.
1: And then just to return to what I I think is the area that's most resistant to reform, which is this question of violence, um, which is something you write, I think, pretty movingly about in in your book. I mean, uh, for a book that's mostly a a data-driven argument, you you make a pretty impassioned case that we need to uh, not only reconceive how we think about dealing with violent offenses, but actually how we think about people who commit these Violent offenses. Now, a, a lot of our work here at the Center for Court Innovation focuses on alternatives to incarceration for nonviolent offenses. That's not the exclusive focus of our work, but that's a good a good part of it. And that means working with prosecutors to expand um, their options, trying to get them to use those options. And I think some people here might say, to your point about violence, look, we're making incremental change here. We we can't force prosecutors to leap to a place that they're not prepared to go. Are those people wrong?
0: They're not wrong, but my concern is that at some point that incrementalism creates a rut you can't get out of right so no the, the the number the sort of the result that that troubles me, and this was came from a survey that was published right as a book just before my book came out, so what my editors wouldn't let me destroy all the page counts to to work it in. but Vox did a survey of about three thousand people asking about criminal justice reform issues. And one question they asked was, no, do you think a majority of people in prison are there for drugs? And they broke it down by liberal, moderate, and conservative, and a solid majority of all three said yes. So ill-informed. But that's fixable. The troubling question was, the really troubling question for me was, for someone who's been convicted of violence but poses little to no risk of reoffending, are you willing to punish that person less now than we currently do? 70% of conservatives, 65% of moderates, and 60% of liberals said no. We've we've told the story of, like, the low-level nonviolent drug offender who fills up our prisons, who needs to be diverted. We've told that story so much that we've convinced the public that we can really make huge, deep cuts just by targeting on on, on the easy to address population. And so, yes, there's something to be said for getting those people out of prison, right? We need alternatives for them. But we keep emphasizing that we're not going to get further. Right? And the politics of it definitely change for prosecutors, and unless we figure out some way to push them, they will never embrace that kind of change, right? Because it is the violent case that is going to be the one that blows up on them, right? Now, if someone's convicted of a low-level weed case, you bail them out; he commits murder on bail. It's easier to say, yeah, you know, that's awful, but it's a low-level weed case. Like, we, how could you expect me to see this coming? If the person is an arsonist and you bail him, give you no, know, have bail reform, he comes out and he commits an inev- inevitable murder that's the case that's going to hurt. And so if the, the DAs can avoid this, they will. You know, and I, I you know at a recent town hall, Eric Gonzalez said, like, I'm willing to embrace bail, like comprehensive bail reform, but I need you to promise me that when that one case inevitably goes south on us, you'll stand by me, right? They're not going to kick me off for that one Willie Horton bad failure. And so, yes, we need to get, you know, focus on these low-level cases, but we, but we're not gonna there's like a discontinuous jump up to violence and we're not gonna incrementally work our way to violence. If we really want to get the violent, we have to some point say, okay, we're shifting from this to that. And this requires require a different rhetoric, a different politics, a different kind of pressure, a different perhaps even different kinds of approaches, not necessarily because the ones that work on nonviolent crimes can't work on violent crimes, but just because we have to approach them in a different kind of way, because of the politics of violence. And so I I it's it's good to focus on that, but I think I, I don't buy an incremental story that's going to get us to serious violence. It's going to take some sort of qualitative political rhetorical shift to, to, to make the, the violent crime story area one where we can really do a lot of work.
1: Well, John, I want to thank you um, very much for joining me today. Thank you. Um, I've been talking with John Pfaff. John is a professor of law at Fordham University and the author of last year's Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration and How to Achieve Real Reform. This has been another episode of the New Thinking Podcast from the Center for Court Innovation. Technical support has been provided by Bill Harkins. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com. Please consider leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. It does help new listeners discover the show. I'm Matthew Watkins. Thanks for listening.